Western Secret Services remained pretty tight-lipped about their listing activities in West Berlin, and information about their espionage work on the Teufelsberg and the other spots can be obtained mostly from the open uh, Stasi files, which is uh, pretty ironic. This is Cold War Conversations. Thanks to Patreon Jim Black for our intro today. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. For almost half a century, the hottest front in the Cold War was right across Berlin. From summer 1945 until 1990, spying was part of everyday life in both East and West Berlin. I speak with historian Bernd von Koska of the Allied Museum in berlin Dahlem, who has co-authored with Sven Felix Kellerhoff the book Capital of Spies, Intelligence Agencies in Berlin During the Cold War, recently published by Casemate. The book describes the spectacular successes and failures of the various secret services based in the city, and in this episode we will concentrate on one of the chapters detailing the work of the various Allied listening stations, including the famous Teufelsberg. Now, you probably fast-forward or you skip this bit, but the podcast does rely on your support to enable me to continue to capture these incredible stories and make them available for free. You can support my work and help to preserve Cold War history via one-off or monthly donations. Hi, this is Tree from Berlin. I decided to support Cold War Conversations with a monthly subscription for a couple of reasons. I believe it's so important and interesting to hear these stories from that period, good and bad. Books will tell you so much, but the real-life stories from people who were there make it so real. Sometimes you feel like you are there experiencing these times in history. If you're interested, please go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more details. So, back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Bernd von Koska to our Cold War conversation. Teufelsberg is indeed a very remarkable place in Berlin, and it has uh, so many historical layers uh, that it's worth uh, to looking at uh, each one of them. And it starts in uh, the mid-30s in the Third Reich, and it was the plan of uh, Albert Speer, the general building inspector for the capital of the Reich. And he planned a, a university for Berlin. Uh, and the first building there should be the Faculty of Defense Technology of the Technical University. And Adolf Hitler himself uh, performed the first hammer blow when the foundation stone was laid on the 27th of November in 1937. But the construction plans were revised, well, several times over the course and uh, during the coming years. And uh, that means that by the outbreak of uh, World War II, only the main building of the faculty uh, was nearly completed. So with no more buildings being constructed there during the war, the incomplete main building was about 50 meters in height, was the only remaining building there and was one of the ruins in Berlin in 1945. And then the second layer of uh, history started. And uh, that was when Berlin was looking for a spot or a place where they could put all the the rubble of Berlin, you know, after the mass destruction in Berlin, uh, you have uh, millions of tons of... And they decided to put it uh, there, uh, near the Teufelssee, and approximately 12 million cubic meters, so thousands and thousands of lorry with this rubble. And they built the Teufelsberg. And uh, basically, it was not the natural hill, but uh, the complete 115 meter high Teufelsberg uh, was completely made of this Second World War uh, rubble. 
I think it remains the highest point in in Berlin still today. It is, uh, together with another little mountain that is called Mügelberg. Uh, they both have about 115 meters. And indeed, the Teufelsberg, because of this, uh, became a popular uh, recreational area, especially for the uh, winter sports uh, enthusiasts. So they did some skiing there, and uh, it became a very popular place to go. But the uh, Americans and the British are not so interested in skiing, but uh, <laughs> see it as a really good opportunity to listen in on radio communications. Uh, that's right. And uh, they discovered uh, that uh, this hill uh, has offered them the chance to uh, install their equipment uh, on the top. And indeed, for more than 20 years, the station on Teufelsberg was a clearly visible symbol of the technological side of the Cold War. Yes, and still a visible symbol now, but we'll come on to that towards the end of our uh, chat. How does the listening station develop? Well, as you mentioned, the secret services uh, in West Berlin became interested uh, in that place. And it was uh, in the British sector of Berlin. Uh, so the British were the first uh, who set up mobile equipment and mobile listening stations up there. Uh, but between 1961 and 1963, the Americans negotiated with the British that they could use Americans uh, this place and uh, Americans then were given control uh, of the Teufelsberg while the British armed forces were also allowed to make use of the site. And uh, well, the Americans uh, first put up their equipment as a British uh, mobile equipment, but in uh, between 1969 and 1971, the Americans built a permanent complex of buildings and from 1972 they started listening around the clock so in the same year the british also moved their 26 signal unit from gatau to the teufelsberg uh, and they also installed a 120 meter high antenna that was built by the german uh, well-known company rode and schwarz and for, for 20 years, American and British uh, Secret Services used uh, this building complex uh, of their telecommunication reconnaissance. And in addition to this well-known facility, there were a number of other spots in the western part of Berlin uh, that were used for the same way or at least for a similar purpose. And this is because uh, of the unique uh, geographical location of the city that made it an ideal place for the radio electronic reconnaissance uh, efforts uh, of the West. What, what were they listening to and, and what techniques did they use to capture information? Uh, Western Secret Services uh, remained pretty tight-lipped about uh, their listening activities in West Berlin and information about their espionage work on the Teufelsberg and the other spots can be obtained um, mostly from the open uh, Stasi files, which is uh, pretty ironic uh, that you have uh, to go to the former enemy uh, <laughs> to get more information uh, yeah. on what uh, Western powers did here in Berlin. So East Germany and the Soviet Union were in the position to be able to gain extensive knowledge of the radio electronic reconnaissance work of the Western powers there and the role of spies uh, in this regard will be discussed later. You mentioned just just a moment back that there were other listening stations in Berlin. What, what were those listening stations? From an aerial uh, point of view, uh, Marienfelde and Teufelsberg, uh, both in the American sector, look pretty similar. So the American forces in Berlin were based on Aschberg in the district of Marienfelde, also in the western part of the city in their sector. And this location was uh, only a thousand meters away from the East German border, uh, from East Berlin. And the base there had been established in 1962. And uh, in the coming years, altogether about 14 buildings were there, 
and six of them were used for monitoring communications. 6912 um, Electronic Security Group was uh, stationed there at Marienfelde, and its task was to record and to evaluate all electromagnetic signals that uh, referred to in Anglo-American terminology as signal intelligence or SIGINT. Obviously, there were other methods of acquiring intelligence. Um, communication intelligence, called COMINT, which monitored uh, data transmissions from satellite to teleprinters, and also electronic intelligence, called ELINT, which dealt with the interception recording and deciphering of various signals and codes. And there at Marienfelde Station, uh, they were able to do all uh, that kind of stuff. And in uh, the frequency range from 25 megahertz to around 20 gigahertz, uh, they were able to monitor all the signal traffic uh, that came from the German Democratic Republic, from uh, the Polish Uh, People Republic and uh, from uh, Czechoslovakia. So like the Teufelsberg, Marienfelde was uh, also in direct contact and in direct exchange with the National Security Agency headquarter in Fort Meade, United States, in Maryland. And the results of the work in Marienfelde as well as on the Teufelsberg were forwarded uh, to the NSA Uh, pretty directly via computer-aided electronic data processing. So that's Marienfelder. What what were the other stations? Well, Marienfelder and Teufelsberg were actually uh, the two main listening stations. But uh, nevertheless, uh, there was also uh, one in Tempelhof. The listening station Tempelhof uh, stood on the ground uh, of the airport there. And a modern uh, radar installation was set up in the summer of 1984, which enables uh, the detection of other active radar installations within a radius of approximately 360 kilometers. So according to the assessment of the Stasi, uh, as I said, where you get the most information from, Marienfelde, Teufelsberg and Tempelhof stations constituted an effective early warning uh, system for um, the Americans and aerial activities, any kind of aerial activities uh, of the Warsaw Pact uh, within a range of approximately 500 kilometers of those stations could be detected. Wow. Wow. So these are really valuable installations for NATO. That's right. And that's the reason why not only those listening stations were so important, but the, the city of Berlin was so important because it was right in the middle of former enemy land. And from here, you have uh, much better opportunities uh, for several things, especially for listening into those Warsaw Pact states. Yeah. You mentioned Gatow in the British sector as well earlier. Yes, indeed. Uh, I mentioned those three American uh, listening stations, but also at the airport in Gatow. And uh, in Gatow, they carried out radio electronic reconnaissance. And uh, in the 50s, approximately 5,000 British conscripts were taught the Russian language so they could listen to Russian radio traffic. And Gatau was definitely one of those locations where they uh, were posted. And the most talented guys amongst those were given even the opportunity to study the language at the prestigious University of Cambridge. And in 1983, a new radar station was constructed in Gatau that enabled the detection of civil and military aircraft within a range, again, of several hundred kilometers. So, Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War 
um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. The Americans had a kind of early warning system. The British had one as well. And now only one nation is left. <laughs> It's the French. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the French often, I mean, they do sometimes get left out of the history of uh of Berlin. But um, let, let's talk about the French. What what do we know about their activities? Well, again, uh, unfortunately, little is known about the radio electronic reconnaissance of the French occupation forces in Berlin. Uh, and even the Stasi was unable to obtain any useful information in uh, this regard and probably uh, did not even have any spy Uh, within uh, the French uh, secret area. So all that has been determined about the military area in the effort in Tegel is what uh, is that radio equipment um, that they have there and that was installed there for, well, unknown purpose. It's obvious that the security restrictions, especially for this area, was uh, very high. Also, information about the nearby called Camp Foch, uh, where the intelligence uh, service of the French armed forces were located, is also very limited. But uh, one thing is for sure, even though all three Western powers uh, were working together in, in Berlin, they did not work together in that field. The British and the Americans did, as I just mentioned, on the Teufelsberg. Uh, they, sh they shared this location. Not much was shared with the French. I did interview a French soldier who worked in Signals Intelligence in Berlin, and he said that the security was quite lax, but um, he was operating at quite a low level in terms of just listening in and transcribing and sending data back to uh, Paris. There's one nice little episode when they sold all uh, the uh, furniture, the equipment of the Allied forces. They also sold uh, tables and chairs uh, from the French. And uh, one guy noticed that on the table, a radio frequency in East Germany. So <laughs> obviously a guy was sitting on that table who was listening to East German radio frequencies <laughs> because he scratched it in the table. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's that is it. That is a great story. So, just going going back to the the Teufelsberg. I mean, inevitably, with any soldiers, if they have trouble pronouncing something, they they change the name. And um, I think the the Americans had an abbreviation for the Teufelsberg, didn't they? Yeah, it's easy to call it Teberg or the Hill. So um, whenever we um, talked about the Teufelsberg, uh, it's uh, to, to Americans or to British, uh, you can uh, always call it Teberg or the Hill, and uh, they uh, would know what you're talking about. But the military uh, name for it was uh, FSB, Field Station Berlin. So uh, whenever you uh, go into uh, documents, uh, you would find uh, FSB, and that's uh, Field Station Berlin. And in July 1961, uh, the Special Operations Unit of the Americans 78th uh, Army Security Agency, the ASA, set up uh, the first mobile listening station on the hill, <laughs> as Teufelsberg was uh, colloquially referred uh, to by the Americans. And from 1962, this unit became directly under the command of the headquarters of the ASA in the United States. And in 1967, the unit was renamed Field Station Berlin, SFB. And as a result of a re Constructing in 1977, the FSB, the Field Station Berliner Teufelsberg, was integrated into the Intelligence and Security Command, INSCOM, of the U.S. Army. 
Uh, and also stationed on the hill uh, on Teufelsberg was the 6912th Electronic Security Group of the U.S. Air Force. And it was the NSA uh, that determined the uh, objectives to be archived and the tasks to be carried out on the Teufelsberg. There were physically at least two, uh, sometimes more, uh, people from the NSA directly on the Teufelsberg station to make sure that the important stuff went uh, directly uh, to Fort Meade, whereas all the other stuff that was recorded, uh, you know, was recorded and uh, they listened to it later. Right. And how many people were working there? Well, the Teufelsberg uh, was operating 365 days a week in a three sh shift system, 24 hours a day. And because of this three shift system, uh, up to uh, 1,500 people worked in the buildings of this listening station. And uh, you can say approximately 1,000 of them were members of the U.S. Armed Forces and another 300 to 500 were members of the British Army and the Royal Air Force. Imagine it is a little town itself. They even had their own fitness center. I know that because I, in person, I screwed the uh, fitness center sign at the Teufelsberg and it's now in the collection of the Allied Museum in Berlin. What, what sort of technology were they using? Do we have any insight into that? Again, well, when they um, moved out of Teufelsberg in 1992, obviously <laughs> they took all the equipment and, and literally all of it uh, with them. But you can be sure that at the time, uh, the latest and most innovative technical equipment was used uh, by the field station Berlin in order to fully exploit uh, the mass of information that is being collected there. Uh, and all the Teufelsberg equipment was paid by the American taxpayer, which is pretty unusual in West Berlin because uh, all the other stuff the military used, uh, buses and uh, whatever you need. Uh, that was paid by the German taxpayer. But uh, the stuff they bought for the Teufelsberg is obviously so a secret they that they didn't want any German eyes uh, on that equipment, so they paid it, it themselves. And uh, in the event that Berlin should be uh, seized by the enemy, it is obviously necessary to either or oh, first place to destroy all the documents and um, second place to destroy all the equipment uh, because you don't want this equipment in the hands of the enemy, uh, neither the documents uh, you produced. So therefore, they conducted several times each year, they conducted um, a little um, exercise uh, where they dealt with the destruction of material and also of electronic devices. And in, in one case, uh, such uh, exercise uh, went uh, terribly wrong. And in Marienfelde in 1986, a document shredder exploded and injured 34 Americans. Do we know of what intelligence gains NATO got as a result of their listening post on the T-Berg? Well, it's, again, difficult to say uh, much about the quality of the information obtained on the Teufelsberg, uh, as there are insufficient sources of this matter. But it can only be speculated uh, whether there were any important uh, messages and deceptions amongst uh, that stuff, especially during the Cold War. But nevertheless, I cannot give you a single example, but in general, I can say there's one indication of the effectiveness of Teufelsberg, and um, that is that the U.S. Department of Defense uh, has awarded uh, the prestigious, uh, they call it Travis Trophy, every year since 1964 to the unit that has made the most important contribution 
to strategical reconnaissance. And uh, all intelligence units in the Army, in the Navy, and in the Air Force all around the world are considered. And the field station in Berlin on the Teufelsberg is the only unit that has received this trophy four times in 1973, 1981, 1985, and 1989. So uh, I would say uh, this is a strong hint that uh, Teufelsberg was also pretty uh, effective. Indeed. Indeed. So this must have been one of the top NATO installations that the Soviets and the East Germans wanted to gain intelligence about. What what did the Soviets and the East Germans know about the installation? Well, obviously, as you said, the East German regime was uh, very interested in finding out more about uh, the efficiency and uh, the function of uh, the Teufelsberg station. And uh, they generally did so, uh, on the one hand, by analyzing uh, what is obvious, what can be seen, uh, the equipment especially, and also by trying to uh, find any people uh, who give them any kind of information. So they were actually trying to get spies into Uh, those areas like Teufelsberg and Gatau. The East Germans uh, even had their own program for it, and they call it Relay. Uh, that was a code name uh, for helicopter flights over West Berlin, whose purpose was to observe uh, the antenna sets uh, um, that were set up by the Western powers in those stations like Teufelsberg, Marienfelde, Templo of Gatau, And those helicopter flights were, of course, totally legal, not illegal, but they were legal. And um, they even had a own division uh, of the Stasi uh, that undertook these uh, reconnaissance flights. And, for example, in 1986, a Soviet Mi-17 transport helicopter took 84 hours in the air exclusively on that task. So for 84 hours, he was doing nothing else but <laughs> photographing, filming, and uh, having a good look at all the antennas on uh, those listening stations. And what do the Western powers do uh, to protect uh, their equipment? And that's pretty simple. They were trying, obviously, to hide uh, their equipment And at the Teufelsberg and at Marienfelde, they were doing that under so-called randomes, which looks like uh, oversized golf balls. And this is still, still today, uh, you can see those golf balls from kilometers far away uh, from the Teufelsberg, you, uh, for wherever you are, and you look at the Teufelsberg, you will see those golf balls. Yeah, they're, they're pretty wrecked now, but they're still very distinctive. So the the Soviets and the East Germans are looking at these sites visually from helicopters and from across the border, but did they manage to get any agents in place at Field Station Berlin? At Field Station Berlin, uh, yes, they were able to do that, and they were also able to do that in, in Gatau. And uh, finally, uh, they were able to do that in Marienfelde. <laughs> so I just mentioned the most important listening stations, uh, Teufelsberg, uh, Gatau, Marienfelde. And in all three of them, uh, the Stasi and the KGB had their spies. So who, who was the Gatau spy? Well, the Gatau spy is, is a guy called uh, Geoffrey Prime. And he is a British wireless operator and uh, has a, a good knowledge of the Russian language. And therefore, he was uh, posted at the Royal Air Force in Gatow in 1964. And he worked there in the signals intelligence. He decided uh, to work for the other side uh, to, to earn some money. But uh, the way he made contact um, to the Russian side uh, was quite interesting. He was 
going to West Berlin by the duty train that run regularly from West Germany to West Berlin, transporting uh, soldiers and also their families. And the duty train stopped at the train station in uh, checkpoint Marienborn. And uh, the soldiers were not allowed to open the window, but um, Geoffrey Prime did that. When the, the, when the train moved on, he opened the window and threw out a piece of paper on the platform. Uh, and on the paper it says uh, what his name, what he's doing, and that he's willing uh, to work for money um, to get information uh, from uh, Gato for money. And that also shows you how simple it was to make contact with the other side. Uh, ironically, even though if someone of his colleagues uh, would have seen him throwing something out of the window, he could always say, well, it's trash and I wanted to leave my trash in East Berlin and that would be funny and uh, everything everybody would love. So, And he was totally safe because the train wouldn't stop. So none of uh, the, the soldiers or whatever were allowed to get out on checkpoint Marienborn on the platform, just the officer who was negotiating um, uh, the, the train details. And after the officer is on the train again, that's it. And uh, it was uh, really simple for, for him to make contact. And in, indeed, uh, he, he was equipped with a small Minox camera and he was trained in various uh, techniques for passing on intelligence and he was stationed in Gato for four years and during that time he was uh, especially handing uh, information over to the Soviet side and uh, when he was transferred, transferred to England uh, he also worked in um, various positions at the GCHQ And he remained a double agent during this time uh, until 1977. Uh, he photographed countless documents for the Soviets and uh, his last uh, exchange uh, of documents was in Vienna in 1980. And then he retired. So how was he caught then? Again, a strange story. Uh, he was called because he was uh, sexual assaulting a minor. And for that reason, uh, the police arrested him and then they checked his house. But what they found was uh, proof uh, that he was working for the KGB. And uh, then uh, he was sentenced uh, to 38 years prison And he received, I think, 35 years for being a spy and uh, three years for the uh, sexual assault of a minor. Who was the spy directly in the Teufelsberg? Oh, that is a guy um, called James uh, W. Hall. And he, like uh, the British guy, decided to offer his service to the Soviet Union. And again, The way he could do it uh, is typical Berlin. He just wrote down his willingness to cooperate in a letter, and then he dropped the letter in the mailbox of the Soviet consulate in East Berlin. As, as simple as that. And the KGB was naturally interested in working uh, with this 25-year-old sergeant who was working on the Teufelsberg at the time, And uh, he was the first uh, infiltration of this facility. And uh, ironically, uh, it was not only the KGB who was able to persuade uh, this spy, James W. Hall, but also the Stasi uh, approached him uh, via uh, another, another guy. So Hall was basically working for both KGB and Stasi for a couple of years. And I think only after two years, the, Star uh, the KGB found out that he was uh, also handing over the documents to the Stasi. And then they, they, uh, they, they asked him to decide uh, only to work for one of the agencies 
and uh, how I decided uh, to quit with the KGB and to continue with the Stasi. But that's uh, but, but that that's later in the later in the history. I'd like to mention uh, the guy who was able to recruit uh, Hall for the Stasi. And that is a very, very interesting and uh, somehow also a strange character. And that is a, a Turkish guy called uh, Yusirim Yildirim. Yusirim Yildirim. Uh, he was, I would say, an average Berliner in the 70s. A lot of uh, Turkish foreign workers here in, in West Berlin. And uh, he was obsessed by the idea Uh, to being a spy. So he visited East Berlin uh, several times, uh, contacted the Stasi and said he would like to do business with the Stasi. But, you know, the Stasi could actually do nothing with this guy. He had no connections. He has no important job. He knows nobody. So they sent him home uh, and said, well, come back if you either uh, have an interesting job with the Allied forces. So I think they thought they would never see him again. The opposite was the case. Uh, Yusim Hildirim managed to get a job as a master mechanic at the U.S. Army Vehicle Repair Shop in West Berlin. Uh, that's a place where soldiers on their own could try to repair their cars and under professional guidance. And this uh, guy, uh, Yusem Hildirim, was a master mechanic. And uh, therefore, uh, he had a lot of contacts with uh, soldiers and also with the ones who worked at the Teufelsberg. And only a couple of months after James Hall decided to work for the KGB, those two guys met, the Turkish master mechanic at the repair shop and James Hall in the repair shop bringing his car. They started to chat. They talked about financial situations and stuff like this. And Hall was open for that kind of work anyway. And so it was uh, pretty easy for uh, Yildirim to persuade uh, Hall to work for the Stasi. So that's the reason why came that uh, James Hall worked for both the KGB and the Stasi. Did US counterintelligence not pick up on you know the fact that he was perhaps had more money than he would have been earning in the army or anything like that? Well there's a uh, looking at it uh, nowadays I would even call it a funny story with the Turk Yildirim. So um, Yildirim had a German girlfriend, a new German girlfriend. And uh, the former lover of his new German girlfriend went to the US forces, uh, to the US Army, to the counterintelligence, and said, This Turkish guy is a Stasi spy. So they invited Yildirim uh, for an interview and uh, confronted him uh, with um, uh, the fact that uh, the guy said that he is a Stasi spy. And Yildirim managed to talk him out of the situation. He said, well, of, oh, no, he's only jealous because I'm the new lover of his former girlfriend, and oh, no. And obviously, he had the nature to convince people. And uh, strange enough, uh, because of this interview, uh, the uh, Berlin counterintelligence found uh, him not guilty, uh, though found no evidence. And uh, in fact, uh, weeks later and months later, Yildirim uh, was more than once the private guests of the chief of the Berlin counterintelligence. And he was sitting in the living room with the chief of the Berlin counterintelligence and drinking some alcoholic drinks and chatting about uh, everyday life. So uh, that's uh, that's so that's so crazy. So uh, they, they had him, yeah. They 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 had him in front of the desk, uh, and uh, someone accused him to be a spy for the Stasi. But well, they couldn't find evidence. He was talking himself out of the situation, and he he got away with it. That would have been uh, very embarrassing when that was brought up with the uh, head of counterintelligence <laughs> in Berlin. <laughs> 
Um, what what sort of intelligence was Hall passing over? Because he he was transferred at one point as well from the Teufelsberg. Yeah, from uh, the Teufelsberg, uh, Hall worked there for a couple of years and then he was transferred back to the United States and then he applied again for a job in Frankfurt. One could say he might even did more damage uh, during his job in Frankfurt than he did on the Teufelsberg. But uh, during the whole time, uh, Yildirim was at his side and Yildirim was handling uh, all the stuff he was able to get out. Yildirim brought that to Isberlin, negotiated a price for the documents, and then they both shared the money they received from the Stasi. And what kind of secrets Hall told the KGB? Uh, he, As I said, he was... Uh, posted to the to Frankfurt to the 25th military intelligence battalion there in the US 5th corps in Frankfurt and all together um, he approximately copied 10,000 documents amongst which were top secret plans developed by NATO wow and i think Marcus Wolf was a big fan of the pair as well well, it was his dream team, you know, <laughs> looking at those two guys, uh, the handler, the Turkish handler of the documents, the one who's negotiating the price, and uh, James Hall, who was uh, uh, first on the Teufelsberg, later on in Frankfurt in, in uh, very interesting uh, positions and uh, very important positions. And obviously, uh, as a spy master for, for East Germany, uh, you must have been a fan of those two guys. Yeah, yeah. How how were they exposed in the end? They were exposed because there was a East German agent, Manfred Severin, uh, who went to the West, uh, to the United States in 1987, and uh, he told them about uh, Yildirim and Hall. And uh, so they uh, they built a trap in the United States and they brought those two guys together again in the United States so they could both, both arrest them in the States and uh, they handed over documents and they they uh, offered money and uh, it was all on camera and uh, yes in December 1988 the American counter-espionage section uh, was uh, able to get those two uh, in the United States and arrest them there yeah. And uh, are they both still in prison? Obviously, uh, their sentence uh, was uh, pretty high, but both uh, of them uh, were freed now. Hall was sentenced to 40 years uh, in prison, and uh, Yildirim, who did not confess, was even sentenced to a lifetime imprisonment in, in 1989. But the circumstances were such that in 1989, Yildirim could hope for a spy exchange. You know, he was a Stasi spy. You know, all those spy exchanges, for example, on Glienicker Bridge. So being a spy imprisoned in the United States in May 1989, you could still hope uh, that the Stasi would get you out. But unfortunately, uh, German unification came at the end of the year and uh, uh, finally in 1990. And uh, well, then Yildirim uh, was uh, trapped. He was he stuck in the prison in the United States. And uh, but after let's uh, after I think 15 years in American uh, prison, uh, he was set free. And he made a stopover while he was going to Turkey. He made a stopover in Germany and he was at the Allied Museum. And there for the very first time in person, uh, the spy master Markus Wolf and his uh, Turkish uh, spy on the Teufelsberg, the handler, met in person at the Allied Museum. And there's a photo of this, uh, of this meeting uh, at the museum and in the book as well. 
That's incredible. Was Hall the only agent that the Soviets and the East Germans managed to get onto the Teufelsberg, or were there any others? He was the only one, but the Americans uh, took uh, steps to prevent uh, similar spies because when Hall was interviewed after it was known he was a spy and was arrested, he said that he would never had worked for the KGB or the Stasi if he had undergone polygraph tests uh, while he was doing his work on the Teufelsberg or in Frankfurt. And um, this sentence, um, that it, 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 it ring a bell uh, <laughs> with the guys who were running those uh, installations. And from, from then on at the field station, uh, the soldiers who were handling sensitive data were subjected to a lie detector. And uh, that was not done before Hall, but after him. The KGB and the Stasi had on all three um, installations, uh, they had spies. Uh, we talked about uh, Hall and Yildirim on the Teufelsberg. We talked about Jeffrey Byam and Gatto. And now there's uh, still one guy missing uh, who was working in Marienfelde at the listening station. And this is a, a young guy called Jeffrey Carney, who at a very early age, at 17, decided to um, enter uh, the uh, U.S. Air Force services. And he had incredible good skills in uh, German. So Carney was a very complex character. And he his story is so amazing. And in his autobiography, which has more than 500 pages he is mentioning that all but to make a long uh, story short he was working for a long time for the stasi his per personal wish was always to live in east berlin as a average and normal citizen uh, the stasi knew that but he uh, he they had him on the hook and they he worked for the stasi for many, many years, until German unification came. After unification, uh, he became an average uh, citizen, a normal uh, GDR citizen. Uh, he was a, a U-Bahn, a metro driver uh, in East Berlin. And incredibly enough, after it was obvious uh, that this uh, German guy, who had a different name then, was actually a former uh, U.S. soldier and spy for the Stasi. The CIA just kidnapped him in unified Germany without telling the German government, and Carney was uh, sentenced again to be a spy in the United States, stayed there for many, many, many years in prison, and then uh, was released uh, and uh, very unhappy that he lost his German uh, documents and is no longer a German citizen and is not allowed to come back. And as I said, it's it's a very, very interesting story, but a very long one. But I just want to mention there was another spy uh, for the Stasi that was the American uh, Jeffrey Carney in Marienfelder. Yeah, and we'll uh, probably dedicate an episode to Jeffrey Carney because it is a really interesting story. So stand by for that. So what happens to the Teufelsberg after the opening of the war? Americans and the British moved out of the field station Berlin in 1992. They took all their equipment with them, of course. And uh, then only two years later, there was an investor who bought that place and who was hoping to uh, build a hotel and, and a housing area uh, on the top of the hill. But um, these plans didn't come into reality. Uh, so this investor consortium and group still owns uh, that place and uh, they couldn't uh, agree with the city government how to develop uh, this place and in between, the American film director, David Lynch, had the 
plan and he wanted to build an esoteric university on top of the hill over there. But that's all. that all didn't happen. And uh, what happened in 2011 was um, they opened uh, the place again and offered uh, guided tours. And uh, nowadays it's a kind of uh, an open-air gallery for graffiti artists. So I've just been up there a month ago with a guest from the United States, a lady uh, from the Spy Museum in Washington. She wants to see the place. And uh, you have marvelous graffiti up there and you still have an incredible view uh, from the rooftop of the Teufelsberg. As I said, the golf balls are half destroyed, uh, but you still know what they were for. And it's still a very, very uh, interesting place to visit but it's under construction preservation and any plans to build a, a spy museum up there or to have, again, uh, offices or restaurants or whatever. This is very questionable and we will see what uh, will happen to this place. Now, the name of Bernd's book is Capital of Spies, Intelligence Agencies in Berlin During the Cold War. There are links in the show notes for you to purchase from and that will help support Cold War Conversations. Now this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the cold war conversation thanks very much for listening it is really appreciated goodbye Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.